Well, I just want to express my sincerest gratitude and thankfulness to Pastor Andrew and uh, his family and the lovely staff and elders. Uh, I was talking with my wife on the phone multiple times throughout this week, uh, just recounting uh, your kindness, your hospitality, and I've just felt so welcomed and so encouraged. So if anything, the gift uh, and the privilege really has been mine to be able to be out here with you. Uh, so thank you for that. This past weekend, uh, as has already been mentioned, we did a little bit of a deep dive into uh, this topic of depression. One of the things with depression that I find, and one of the essential experiences that I find with those who struggle with depression, who know the Lord, who belong to Christ, is that when we are stuck and when we are paralyzed, there's this fundamental sense in feeling that God, for whatever reason, seems quite afar off. He feels distant. He feels absent. He feels disengaged from our suffering. You don't even have to be someone who has suffered through depression or, or is maybe in the valley of suffering, but maybe you resonate with that experience of, there are times when I pray, and a friend of mine said, I feel like my prayers go up, but God doesn't hear them. I just, I feel like there's quietness on the other end. The question that we might ask ourselves this morning then is, is there a story in Scripture, is there a place that we can go that matches and maps onto experiences like ours? And I believe there is. So if you have a Bible, let me uh, invite you to turn with me to the book of Job. And uh, turn over with me to Job chapter 1, and to help us orient our gaze to where we're at, we'll just simply work through four headings to help us get our bearings. If you're not familiar with Job, uh, it's right before Psalms. We'll just look at this first chapter together. First heading is this, we, we learn something about Job in these first section of verses. Let me read verses 1 through 3 for you. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons, three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. We're told there in the opening verses that Job is a man who is blameless, who is upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. It is quite the resume, right? If you're applying for a job, there's probably not a resume that you could put together that would look better than Job's. Daniel Estes, a commentator on Job, writes this, that this statement about Job and his character is not a claim that Job is morally perfect as God is perfect, but rather that within the bounds of human fallenness, the righteousness of Job is commended by God. Another commentator commenting on this passage says that what is being done here in these opening verses where Job is described as someone who is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil is meant to speak to Job's genuineness and his authenticity. As you read through the book of Job, as I'm sure many of you have, you'll realize that several times throughout the book of Job, Job honestly reflects on the fact that he is a sinner, both in Job 7, verse 20, and Job 13, and in Job 14. Three different times in the book, Job will talk about how he committed iniquities in his youth, how he is a transgressor. And so, Job is well aware that even despite this description of himself, that he still is a sinner. Not only is Job a man who is blameless and upright and who fears God and turns away from evil, but we're additionally told in these opening verses that Job was a blessed man, seven sons and three daughters and multiple uh, livestock. 
And finally, that statement at the end that uh, we're told that he is the greatest of all the people in the East. And back in ancient Near Eastern times, there, there was no West. There was only the East. So this was kind of the commentator's way of saying, listen, Job is the greatest person on the face of the earth. But it's in the midst of this blessing and description of Job that we learn of a heavenly meeting, a heavenly council in verses 6 through 12. And that brings us then to our second introductory heading to help us orient ourselves. Just allow your eyes to glance down to verse 9. We'll read 9, 10, and 11 together. It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Here in this section, the narrator describes a scene which would have been quite common in ancient Near Eastern literature, the idea of heavenly councils and gods meeting together and people having different councils up in the heavens. This would have been a scene that that people would have resonated with. What does Satan essentially want then in issuing this challenge to God? David Jackson reminds us. He says, quote, the challenge is a simple one, the challenge that Satan is issuing. Satan is saying to God that none of God's people love him more than they really love themselves. Their love for God, their faithfulness to him, it's not God-centered. It's actually more self-centered. It is about what they get out of God. What does Satan ultimately want then in this challenge? He ultimately, I think, wants to make God a liar. He wants to prove that that God and the people that he loves and blesses don't really show faith and trust in him because they love him, but simply because he gives good things to them. And I don't want you to forget that particular point because we'll come back to it at the end of our story. Well, Satan gets to work on his challenge, and in verses 13 through 19, we come to our third heading where we are told news about Job's losses in sufferings. In verse 13, the narrator opens up and introduces the next section by saying, now there was a day. Now there was a day. Now, I think if there was Instagram back in the day and there were little memes that we could go through, right? There might be a meme that says, hey, do you think you've had a bad day? with maybe a picture of Job and all of us realizing probably none of us have ever had a bad day like Job. In the span of one day, we are told of massive losses on Job's part. Four different messengers will deliver news to Job that people have come and killed and removed all of his oxen and donkeys, all of his sheep and servants have been killed, all of his camels and servants who are watching over them, and then finally, and most horrifically, a great wind has caused his, the oldest son's house to collapse and to kill all of his children. The devastation that Job hears about and that he receives, the, the devastation in the news is total and it's catastrophic. But it's in the midst of this catastrophic loss that we get to see and hear Job's response, which brings us then to our fourth introductory heading where we learn something about Job's response. Allow your eye to glance to the end of the chapter in verse 20. It says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong." 
We're told in verse 20 that Job arises and tears his robe, shaves his head, and falls on the ground. And again, if you were an ancient Near Eastern reader of this story, this would have made complete sense. This would have been the traditional and the expected response to such news of grief and destruction. But it is the end part that would have surprised the readers. His initial response of falling on the ground, shaving his head, and tearing his robe. But it is that end part of the fact that Job worships, that Job worships God. You see, we get the first part, but it is the second part that even on our best days seems quite confounding to us. What seems so surprising is the worship which ensues in Job's grief, not, not in spite of his grief. With that by way of background and context to help orient us to where this story is headed, uh, keep your finger there, but turn over to Job chapter 9, which will be our text this morning. Job chapter 9. And as you're flipping there, let me kind of catch you up to speed with what happens from Job 1 to Job 9. As you turn there, uh, what happens essentially is that after Satan's challenge to kind of destroy everything in Job's life, he comes back to God and says, hey, you know, I tried, but I think I need to try again because if you really let me afflict Job, I think then he would really curse you to your face. God says, fine, you can do that. You just can't take his life. And then after this period of not only suffering in his world, but personal suffering, a series of three friends are going to come and are going to visit Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. At first we feel, hey, they know what they're doing. They come from afar. They obviously have a relationship with him because they know what's happened to him. And for seven days, they sit in silence with him. And, and honestly, as Job will recount later, that probably represents the best of their ministry, that, that first seven days. And so what will happen over the balance of a significant portion of chapters is that a friend will come and talk and then Job will respond what we see here in chapter 9 is that right before chapter 9, the second friend has kind of come up to the stage. His name is Bildad, and probably out of the three friends, Bildad is, is probably not the friend that you want to bring to a counseling session. He's probably not the friend that's going to give you hugs and kisses when you need it. Here's what Bildad's first words are to Job, and, and we're paraphrasing here from the message. Bildad says, how can you keep on talking like this, Job? You're talking nonsense and noisy nonsense at that. Does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backward? It is plain that your children sinned against Him. Otherwise, why would God have punished them? Here's what you must do, and don't put it off any longer. Get down on your knees before God Almighty. If you're as innocent and upright as you say, it's not too late. God will come running. He'll set everything right again. Reestablish your fortunes. Even though you're not much right now, you'll end up better than ever right? It's very, very discouraging. If we even summarize the paraphrase, it might go something like this, Bildad coming to Job, hey Job, shut up. You were just talking way too much. You're impugning God's character. All of this suffering that you're going through, it's ultimately your fault. You, you know why your kids died? It's probably because they sinned against God and God was punishing them. But Job, don't worry. If you try really hard and if you're a really good person, and if you grovel your way back to God, God will give you back everything that you had. And talk about friends, right? No wonder Job in chapter 16, verse 2, will call all of his friends miserable comforters. But before that, in response, Job will offer what I believe is really his most honest and heartfelt cry really in the book. And that is here represented for us in Job 9. 
As we come to Job 9, we'll hang our thoughts and we'll work our way through the chapter along these three headings. We'll see that Job says something about God. We'll see that Job expresses his problem to God. And then finally, we'll see that Job considers his choices. So we'll kind of run through, okay, in light of all of this, what do I do? So here we go. Job says something about God. Allow your eye to glance down to verse 4. In verse 4, Job is going to begin a hymn of praise extolling God's power in creation. He says, God is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. For over 10 verses, Job will recount and extol God's power in creation from verse 5 where Job says that God can remove mountains and they know it not. That would have, that would have meant something to a first century audience, right? In the Old Testament, mountains represented the apex of geographical stability. Mountains represented something that was stable and unmovable. And yet here in Job 9, Job says, listen, you can, you can pick up a mountain and move it. In verses 6 through 7, Job tells of God's ability to shake the earth, to command the sun and make it not rise. In verse 8, he talks about God being able to trample the waves of the sea or traverse on the back of the sea. And if mountains represented all that was geographically stable in Job's world, in an ancient Near Eastern audience and context, the seas represented all that was chaotic in the world. The seas were often used representatively and metaphorically to describe things that were in chaos and that were out of order. And so what Job is essentially saying is that from the most stable thing in my world to the most chaotic thing in my world, God, you are in control of all of them. There is nothing in all of nature There is nothing in the universe that God is not in control of. But friends, here's the problem. There is a conundrum in the midst of Job's hymn of praise because what Job is probably thinking then at the back of his mind is this, is listen, God, if you are so powerful, if you can make the sun not rise, shake the earth, ride the backs of the sea, why can't you change my situation? Why can't you change my situation? Why can't you restore back to me all that has been lost? Why can't you bring back my 10 children? Why can't you restore back my fortunes? And not only that, God, if you are so powerful, why can't you change my situation? But God, if you are so powerful at the end of the day, if I'm the only one left standing, what in the world can you do to me? The very thing that Job praises about God at the same time seems to be the very cause of Job's problems. And friends, I I would venture to guess that this is a familiar experience for many of you as well. Many of you, you are well taught, you're sensible, smart people, right? You have orthodox knowledge about who God is, His power, His sovereignty. But have you ever considered in your time of struggle and in your time of hardship that it is those very attributes of God that then also present this troubling conundrum? God, if you could change my situation, why wouldn't you? God, if, if you could save my child's life, why wouldn't you? If you can heal me from cancer, then why wouldn't you? And friends, if you have ever felt that, then you have a friend in Job. 
That brings us then to our second heading where we see Job expresses a problem. In the midst of Job's suffering, Job is essentially going to ask four different questions of the Lord, four different questions. And, and there's something about these questions which uh, immediately I know they will resonate with you because in our times of darkness and suffering, I think it's fundamental to human experience that these are questions that we ask ourselves. Here they are. What can make the situation right? Where's God? Does God know that I am blameless? And why are you doing this? What can make this situation right? Where is God? Does God know that I am blameless? And why are you doing this? Allow your eye to glance to verse 2. Job says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? Job asks this age-old question of how can we be right before God? How can I be vindicated, right? And here's the thinking. Remember what Bildad has just said, his good friend in chapter 8? If Bildad is right that ultimately God does not reject a blameless person, then how can you become blameless before God and therefore not be rejected? Unfortunately for Job, the problem is that the one person who can answer this question won't respond to his cries. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. This verse reminds me of a situation that oftentimes happens at my home with my wife. My wife from about sun up till about four o'clock in the afternoon gets asked, question after question after question. What are we doing? Why do we have to go to school? Where's my homework? Where's my bag? Who did the laundry? What are we having for lunch? What? And it's just question after question. And I found this time frame between like four and five o'clock. It's like the witching hour for moms where moms just stop answering questions, right? Go talk to your dad. Go talk to your dad. I'm done answering your questions. And in so many ways, that seems to be the experience that Job has here right? Job is asking all of these questions of God, and God will not answer him one time in a thousand, refuses to answer his questions. He's silent. That brings Job then to his second question, God, where are you? Where are you? Show up. Look at verse 11. It says, behold, God passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Look at verse 16. Similarly, He says, if I summon God and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Right? How similar is this sentiment to things that we too have felt and experienced? Right? It's it's not that Job believes that God is completely gone, but the problem is, is that Job knows that God is there, he's present, he's sovereign, he's working in creation, but for whatever reason, God is absent personally from Job. He's absent. He's silent, right? The, the, the first opening verse of Job is a man who's blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. And then at the end of that section where he is offering sacrifices in the morning on behalf of his children, it, it tells us of this sweet relationship that he enjoyed with God that now has gone completely cold. Job believes that God is silent and absent in the midst of a struggle. He doesn't doubt God's power, but he does doubt God's presence in his life. Brings us to a third question then, right? Job is saying essentially, okay, what makes the situation right? Where are you? Why won't you take my call? Thirdly, hey, do you know that I'm righteous? Do you, do you know that I've not done some sin that has necessitated this type of response? Throughout the chapter, Job is going to maintain his innocence. Job is essentially saying, God, I don't think that I deserve this. 
Four different times in the chapter, Job will cry out to God and defend his blamelessness. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, it says, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Look at verse 20. Though I am in the right, though I am blameless, I am blameless. Four different times, right? Job is saying, God, I am blameless. Now, we have to remember what we said earlier. Job is not saying that he has never sinned. Job is not saying that he is perfect. But what Job is saying is he's saying, God, listen, I don't think there is something that I have willfully done that has necessitated and brought this suffering on, right? And that's, that is the dominant message of all of his friends. All of his friends have said, hey, Job, what's the sin? What have you done? What have you not confessed? And Job maintains his innocence. He says, God, I am in the right. I am blameless. But unfortunately for Job, right, he's not aware of all of the things that have been said about him by God in those heavenly councils, right? In the second and then in the first heavenly council, God himself affirms Job's character, right? God himself says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job a man who was what? Blameless, upright, fears God, and turns away from evil. Job never gets to hear that. And so what is he left with in his solitude? He has to defend himself. He has to go before the Lord and say, God, do you know that I've not done anything wrong? Again, I'm sure many of you have been in this spot, right? As you've held a dying loved one, as you've navigated a difficult job situation, as you've watched your marriage fall apart, as you've watched through strained family relationships, people walk away from you, right? You probably have thought to yourself, I, I genuinely don't think that I have done anything wrong that, that necessitates this suffering. And again, if you've been there, you have a friend in Job. The fourth question, the fourth problem that Job has essentially is this, God, why are you doing this? You can sense the frustration, and you'll see as we move through the chapter that Job's, Job's spirit, his emotions are continuing to get elevated. While Job initially seems to agree with what Bildad has said earlier about God doesn't reject blameless people and gives good things to good people, something seems to change in verses 20 through 24. In this section, it seems like Job kind of spirals a bit out of control, and he rejects Bildad's main argument that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and look at what he says in verse 22. He says, it is all one, therefore I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Job says, Bildad, I actually don't buy your argument of good things, bad things, etc. God doesn't care. He, He destroys blameless people and wicked people. He, look, Exhibit A, he destroyed my entire family. Job's sense of why God is doing this reaches perhaps its lowest point then in verse 23. After he says that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked, he says, when disaster brings sudden death, right? And that's not an abstracted principle of suffering, right? Job is saying that as someone who has in reality lived that in real time. When disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. What you hear here is the fundamental lament of a man who's saying, listen, I have lost everything and I cannot make sense of it. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked and, and he, he mocks at the calamity of the, of the innocent. In verse 24, Job reaches a low point. He says, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges and, and, and you hear this turn. He says, if it is not he, who then is it? Right? 
it's almost like Job kind of verbally vomits. He, he laments over to God. He says, listen, here it is. Here's your chance, God. If you're not the one doing all of this, if you're not the one destroying blameless people and wicked people, then can you at least tell me who is responsible? Who's doing this? The pain, the pain in Job's lament is palpable, right? And again, we have, we've all been there, right? You and I, we are so similar to our friend Job. When you are at the bottom of suffering, right, when you are in the darkness, when you feel stuck, paralyzed, moving through fog, sucked down in quicksand, you'll search for any answer, right? Anything that comes on the market, right? And what ultimately leads us back, right, in our thinking, in our thoughts is, okay, God, what is going on? What are you doing? Answer me. And that brings us then to our third and our final heading where Job will consider his options. You can kind of, you know, I don't know about you, but I kind of visualize Job. He's sitting there. He's covered in pus and open boils in this ratty shawl garment that's been torn. He's surrounded by three friends. He's exasperated. He's just poured out his heart before the Lord. And he begins to kind of weigh out, okay, God, what are my options? What do I do? As he thinks about this and as he thinks about his situation, he, there's almost this interlude where he reflects on the brevity of life. Look at verse 25 and 26. He says, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and they see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. There are three different metaphors here for the brevity of life that Job uses. First, he says, my days are like a runner, right? My days are like a runner. The sense is, my days go by fast. They just go by fast. Secondly, my days are like skiffs of reed. And skiffs of reed were kind of like these uh, like little papyrus boats that would be, uh, people would put together, right? They, they would last for a little bit, but essentially what happens to paper and to papyrus and the reeds, they, they essentially kind of fall apart, right? You, you send it down the river and, you know, you watch it go along, but pretty soon it's not meant to, you know, sail in the open seas and the boat kind of falls apart. And so what Job is saying here is not only do my days go by fast, but my days are fragile. They fall apart easily. And then finally... He says, my days are like an eagle swooping down on its prey, right? This sense of an eagle moving over the water and seeing a fish and just snapping it out of the water. Job is saying, my days are dangerous. I feel like at any moment I could die. One commentator writes this. He says, even though the days go by fast for Job, they are not going well for Job, right? You and I have a we have a, an idiom that we oftentimes use. We'll say, hey, time's flying by, right? Time's flying by, and that might be true for Job, but the time's flying by, but not in a good way for him. And he reflects on that, and he acknowledges that. After reflecting on life's brevity then, in the balance of chapter 9, Job is going to essentially be faced with three options of what do I do with my suffering? Okay, God, you're not going to answer me, so guess I'm just going to have to figure this out on my own. And he's going to talk through three different options. And so let's talk about each of them just briefly. Option number one, verses 27 through 29. Job says, if I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? I call this first option, uh, the forget about it, be happy, the the New Jersey, New Yorker option, the forget about it, you know? Job says, hey, maybe I'll just try and forget about it. Maybe I'll just forget all my complaint, suck it up, put off my sad face, and just be really happy. 
You know what? Maybe Monday through Saturday has been really, really bad at home and at work, but on Sunday, I'm just going to come. I'm going to get my kids to church. I'm going to smile to everybody. And when people ask me, hey, how are you doing? I'm just going to say, I'm fine. I'm good. We're good. We're all good. Job realizes, though, I can't do it. This is not a viable option, and you see why. Because in verse 28, Job says, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Because Job says, listen, I might be able to put on a happy face, but God, you know me. You know what's going on, and you are going to hold me. You are going to hold me accountable, so forget it. Why even try? So he goes to a second option. Option number two, verses 30 through 31. Job says, well, maybe I'll just wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, but you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. I, I call this the, the make it better, make it nice option, the atone for yourself. Job says, okay, listen, uh, okay, I'm really, I'm really smelly. You know, I've got all these open pores and boils. Maybe what I just need to do is I just need to kind of clean myself up for other people. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Wash myself with snow. Cleanse my hands with lye. And listen, lye back in the day wasn't like Dove body wash here, right? This lye was like a chemical. It would burn your skin. It was, it was a movement that people would do in order to punish themselves, not to clean themselves. And essentially what Job is saying is, listen, God, maybe there's something that I can do on my own to cleanse me and purify me from any type of impurity. Maybe I can do something to make the suffering go away. Maybe if I just read my Bible more. Maybe if I prayed harder. Maybe if I got involved in a community group. Maybe if I had perfect attendance on a Sunday. Maybe then all the suffering would go away. But like the first option, Job quickly discounts it. He says, okay, I could do all that, but verse 31, you're still going to plunge me into a pit. At the end of the day, God, I could go to all of this work and you're still going to put me into a pit. And then Job, uh, in some ways, kind of takes his clothing and he, he gives his clothing life. He says, my own clothes, I stink so bad, my own clothes wouldn't even want to be with me in the pit. That's how low I am. Finally, Job comes then to a third option. He says, okay, if I can't just forget about it, if I can't just make it better and make it nice, God, maybe what I can do is I've got I've to find a really, really good lawyer. Verse 32, it says, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job finally comes upon a third option and he says, okay, Maybe what I need then is a really, really good lawyer, the best out there, the best that money can buy. Now, this desire for a, a lawyer or a mediator will be mentioned later in the book in Job 16, 19. In fact, Job will say, behold my witness or the person who can testify for me. My witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. So again, this, this plea for this intermediator person to go between him and God is not a surprise. But unfortunately, again, Job realizes, like with the other two options, it's not a possible path because Job has no lawyer. There's no advocate. There's no defender. There's no hope, right? There's no Perry Mason standing in the wings. There's no Ben Matlock or Jack McCoy or Harvey Specters just waiting to represent Job. Job's looking around and he's saying, listen, there's nobody. And the reason why nobody wants to take this case is because ultimately it's a mismatched case. It is a lose-lose case. Because what Job says he needs in a lawyer 
is he needs a lawyer whom God will accept and entertain and allow to come into his presence, but also a lawyer who can defend Job, who can stand in for Job, who understands the plight of Job. And Job looks around and he says, I don't think there's anyone like that. Job needs someone who can bridge the gap between him and God, between heaven and earth, someone who can lay his hand on us both. So just put, put a mental note there and we'll come back to that. If we step away from Job 9, we just look at Job as a whole, there's a few observations I think that would be helpful for us to make this morning. We might call them applications, we might call them lessons. These are things that as we read this story of Job, these things come to the forefront for us. Here, here's the first thought that I had as I read Job 9, and it's this. Grief and suffering are complicated things. Grief and suffering are complicated things. I, I think too often we, uh, we simplify grief and suffering and pain and depression, right? Like Bildad, we come in with simplistic answers to complex problems that at the end of the day, rarely satisfied. Things like, hey, don't worry, the best is yet to come, or time heals all wounds, or don't worry, you'll get closure soon, or just keep moving, or God works everything together for good. None of those things at the end of the day really satisfy. If you're someone this morning who is grieving and suffering, know this. The Bible never, ever minimizes your suffering or pain but rather invites you to be honest about these things before the Lord. And in fact, in Job 21, 34, talking about his friends and the comfort and counsel that they offer, Job says this, he says, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Friends, if you've ever been on the receiving end of care or counsel like that, you realize at the end of the day, they're just empty nothings. They're platitudes. We need more than that. Job is all over the place in terms of how he deals and goes through his grief. And what I want you to understand and realize is that in the midst of Job 9 and in all of Job's speeches, there are some things that he says that we might say, oh, I don't know if I would ever say that, Job. I don't know if I'd ever say that, that God mocks at the calamity of the innocent but can I remind you both about what God says of Job at the beginning and the end of the book? In Job 1.22, God says, In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in Job 42.7, God says to Job and to his friends, My anger burns against you and your friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That is amazing. Because what God is essentially saying and what he is revealing to us about Job is that in the depths of grief and suffering, the invitation is to come to God in honesty, in lament, and in faith, not to shrink back from him. All of Job's friends have tried to minimize it, give it platitudes, empty nothing, miserable comfort, and God has chastised them. He has said, listen, you have not spoken of me what is right. You have not represented well the care and character of who I am. But you know who has? You know who has spoken of me what is right? It's Job. Job has spoken of me what is right. And friends, it is that faint line of hope that weaves throughout the book that is Job's dogged determination that at the end of the day, regardless of what he's going through, Job is going to come to God. 
Job will meet God. Daniel Estes writes this, he says, faith in God does not mean that we face pain with a stoic, unfeeling response. When adversity strikes our lives, we can and we should feel the full extent of pain. Faith doesn't deny pain, but rather faith takes pain to the Lord. That takes us then to our second observation that, listen then, when all else fails, when it feels like the bottom of the ship is going out, what do you do? Here's what you do, friends. You remember the object of your faith. You go to the Lord. Now, here, one commentator gives an illustration like this. He says, would you rather have really strong faith in a weak branch? So, like, imagine, like, this huge flood's going through, right? The, the floods that are happening in California. You're sitting on top of a car. You reach up for a branch. Would you rather have strong faith, be super strong, and grab onto a weak branch that at any moment could just break off and you'd go into the waters? Or would you rather have weak faith in a strong branch? What would you rather have, right? A lot of times when we come to the Lord, we want to have really strong faith. God, we got to be strong. Don't let anything bother us. We're like these hermetically sealed bubbles of just insulation from anything that is hard. We feel like we just got to muscle up. That is not the picture we see in Scripture. What we do see is that at the end of the day, it is much more preferable to have weak faith, but that weak faith is weak faith in a strong branch a branch that will never break, a branch that will never let you down, a branch that will always be there through the storms of life. That brings us then to our third observation, which is this, right? That that faith that moves us towards God, that faith that allows us to name what is honest, is in and of itself, I think, a practical expression of hope. And hope, friends, is a powerful thing. We, we talked a little bit this past weekend about how hope is not a feeling. Hope is not naive optimism. Hope is a virtue that we practice. It is a character quality that we cultivate, right? In Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job 14, 7, for there is hope for a tree if it is cut down that it will sprout again. Job 19, 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Multiple times throughout the book, even in the midst of weak faith, Job says, listen, I'm going to place my hope, though, in God. And in fact, in so many ways, we might say Job 9 is the fullest embodiment and declaration of Job's hope, right? That is hope. He's essentially saying, God, I don't know if you're listening, but because I'm going to point my pain and my lament to you, that's where my hope is going. That's where my hope is oriented. It is this embodied hope that lives itself out in prayer as we come before the Lord. Let's come back to Job. Let's come back to Job. Fortunately for us, for believers here at Canyon Bible, we have the benefit and the glory of having all of redemptive history for us in Holy Scripture. I I hope that in some ways Job's story, that as you've been listening to this story, that it reminds you of another story. Does it? I hope that Job's story is is beginning to have faint echoes for you of another story because we know Job's story, but there's also another story that has very, very similar circumstances to this, right? Centuries earlier from Job, Satan is going to try a similar line of attack as he did with Job on some other individuals, Adam and Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden, Satan essentially comes to Adam and Eve, and and we're paraphrasing here, uh, he essentially says, listen, God doesn't really love you. 
God, God doesn't really love you. He doesn't want you to have the good life. And Satan kind of keeps pushing the envelope with Eve. You know, did God really say, can you really trust that? Right? You, you've got to be kidding me, Eve. God's just trying to exploit you. He's just trying to use you. You're, you're a pawn in God's game. He's trying to keep you down. He's, he's trying to keep you from being like him. He's holding out on you. That's why he's told you not to eat of that tree. You see, the lie of Satan at its core, friends, is this. You really can't trust God. You can't trust God. He's not trustworthy. And if you really do trust God, you're totally going to regret it. He will crush you. You won't be happy. You'll be miserable and you'll suffer. Do you want to be happy? Don't trust God. Do whatever it is that you want. Do you want to suffer and have a really hard life? Okay, trust God then. Do what he says. Centuries later, Satan is going to try this exact same tactic, and this time he's going to attack a truly innocent sufferer. He's going to try to attack Jesus Christ. You see, when Job suffered, Job was only relatively innocent. Jesus was truly innocent and blameless. Jesus is the only innocent human being whom God told, if you obey me and trust me fully, I will crush you. If you obey me and trust me fully, I will crush you. He's the only human being, Jesus Christ, who perfectly served God for nothing and expecting nothing in return. So when Jesus Christ suffers and dies on the cross for you and I, it is at the cross that Jesus proves once and for all that Satan is an absolute liar. Friends, Jesus is the person that Job was languishing for and longing for and looking forward to. Though he probably didn't fully understand what he was asking for when he was saying, I need someone who can lay his hand on us both, Job knew that he needed someone outside of himself. He needed Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, comes to us he takes our face in his hands and he looks at us and he says, I have been crushed for you so that you don't have to endure the ultimate crushing. If you will simply trust me and walk with me and learn from me, I will carry you and I will take care of you. You see, in the end, Job was right. He needed Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows, fully acquainted with grief. Reminds me of one of my favorite poems by Robert Hamilton. It goes like this. I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And friends, it is this man of sorrows who comes to us, who submits to God's call on his life, who says, I will obey you fully and I will be crushed. So those whom you call to yourself will never have to endure that final crushing. And friends, what I would ask you this morning is, do you know this God? If you come here this morning, right, we come to church all the time, we, we show up with a happy face, and maybe you're in a time of suffering, and you say, yeah, this, this is hard, and I don't know where to turn. And my, my question to you is, have you really, truly placed your faith and trust in this God, in Christ, a man of sorrows? If you haven't, I know that there are so many people represented here today 
who would want to share with you that good news. For those of you today who are suffering and you are in Christ, perhaps today is just simply a reminder. Perhaps all this is, is just my way through the Spirit to stir you up by way of reminder to say, don't give up hope. Don't forget the object of your faith. Remain steadfast like our friend Job. And in remaining steadfast and in looking to Job, what we ultimately see is that we are looking to Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Job. And in thanking you for Job, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that Christ did not turn away from the final crushing. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows, fully acquainted with grief, came and lived a perfect life, God incarnate, so that he could be our perfect mediator. God, we needed someone who could lay their hand on us and that you would fully accept. And so, Father, we thank you for your son, Christ. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who does not know Christ, Lord, would today be the day of salvation. We ask this in his name. Amen.